I have the distinct pleasure to welcome a dear friend of mine. Uh, she has um, been in my ministry life since I had a ministry life, and uh, I've gotten the chance to serve with Rochelle Parham uh, as a leader for the Gathering Church, uh, as a worship planner, as someone uh, deeply interested in learning about spiritual formation and helping others uh, be formed in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Rochelle Parham uh, literally wrote the primer on spiritual formation. Uh, so you can uh, find that book. It, it says the spiritual formation primer. Um, and she is passing on a lot of the, the wisdom and knowledge that she's gotten from some of her mentors, like Richard Foster or Dallas Willard and others, um, and deep, deeply wise and godly people uh, that she's known through her ministry with Renovare, um, where she serves on the board. And recently, she's expanded that ministry um, through publishing a book. It's, it's called Mythical Me, and it's got one of the best covers of any book I've ever seen released last year from InterVarsity Press. And she'll have uh, some of these um, available at Potluck that you can uh, make your own, and I think she'd probably even be willing to sign it. Um, when we decided to talk about spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation, I knew I had to ask Rochelle to come back and preach uh, because she, she knows the stuff, um, and she is not just someone who talks about the stuff, but someone who practice, practices and does so with uh, grace and joy and hope. So today she's here to share with us about the practice of confession. I'll read our text from 1 John 1. We announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have seen in our hands have handled about the word of life. The life was revealed, and we have seen, and we testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also announce it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy can be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him, and live in the darkness, we're lying, and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way that he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything wrong that we've done. This is God's word for God's people. Good morning, Oak Church. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me to come back. Um, I'm gonna pull this off the stand, there we go. Um, I'm really grateful to be here, and I do bring you greetings from the Gathering Church. Uh, one of the singular um, 
privileges of my life was to be part of the Gathering Church leadership team when um, Chris was ordained into ministry. So to get to be part of ordaining your pastor, that was, that was pretty fun stuff. And um, I was excited to hear about your upcoming baby showers. I got to host the baby shower for Miss Noah Breslin, which has now been years ago. So um, time marches on. It sounds like she's now returning the favor. I'm here this morning to talk to you about something that I believe is really important to God, really important to God, and that is language. And I'll, I'll cite a couple of stories to make that point, one right from the beginning, um, or close to the beginning. You remember the story told in Genesis 11 of when all these people, lots of people, had kind of disregarded very conveniently God's commandment that they disperse and they spread throughout the earth. And they decided instead to gather in one place, and they all spoke the same language, the text tells us. And they decided rather than obeying God's instructions, they would instead gather there and um, kind of build their own reputations. And you remember the story of how they decided that they would build a tower to heaven. You remember that story? We usually call it the Tower of Babel. And I love the fact that they were going to build a tower that was going to reach into heaven, and then the text says that God looked down and came down. So they didn't quite make it to building the tower to heaven, but what did God do? He helped them on their way in obedience to him by confusing their language. And so instead of all of them speaking one language, he, he helped to scatter them by enabling them and causing them to speak different languages. And then another story from almost the other end of the Bible, from Acts 2. You remember this story. If you don't, you were not in Miss Laura Lay Cook's class. Miss Laura Lay Cook was a Sunday school teacher of mine. And Acts 2, you may remember, was the day of Pentecost, and the text of the King James Bible, which is what she used, said that the Holy Spirit came with a sound like a rushing mighty wind. And she made a recording of that, and at the time of the rushing mighty wind, she turned on a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Wonderful sound effect. So I never could forget the sound of the rushing mighty wind, and what happened to the followers of Jesus? People saw what looked like tongues of fire on their heads, and they spoke in different languages, right? And there were so many people gathered in Jerusalem at the time, and they were amazed that they heard what the followers of Jesus were saying in their own languages, so I believe that it is fair to say that language is really important to God. Now, here's the problem. Language can be confusing. And I have a confession for you to start with this morning. I used to be an English teacher. More specifically, I was an English grammar teacher. I love grammar because it gives order and structure to language. 
Now, I know what you all may think when you think about grammar. Check it. I know you're with the grammar police, but who's that guy? He's the corrections officer. <laughs> well, I have served as both grammar police and as correction officer, and I know that's what you might think of when you think of grammar. But I want to help you maybe think of it a little different way. And in fact, I'm going to share with you a statement that I used to make my students memorize. Now, granted, this is when I was teaching in a Christian school setting, but I made them memorize these words. Language is a gift from God to image bearers for the purpose of communication, which is necessary for community. I promise you, I made them memorize it, and I made them fill in the blanks on a test. This is what I wanted them to know about language. Language is important to God, but it must be stewarded well. So I see grammar as a friend, because it helps us use the gift of language well. But, of course, grammar is not the point. Language is not the point. Even communication is not the point. Community is the point. Community matters to God. God himself is community. This is why it so matters to him. God, within his own being, is community. It blows our minds, but the Bible reveals God to us as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So within his own being, God is community. And then God created human beings in his image. We were created for community. In fact, I love the way my friend Dallas Willard put it. You may want to write this down. The aim of God in human history is the formation of a community of loving persons with Christ himself at the center of that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That is what God is up to, is building this community, this all-inclusive community of loving persons, of you, of me, of all of us. God is building the community, and he intends that we be part of it. Community requires communication. Communication requires language. And so you can see, God is interested in language. Language is a gift from God, a gift of a God of relationship made for his image bearers, made for community. This may be the only place you'll ever hear a theological basis for being a grammar nerd, right? Nerd, party of one. You can just seat me by myself. But. But since the use of language is needed for community, I want to suggest to you that it requires more than just order and structure. We need more than grammar. Language requires truth. 
because it's a gift for community. It requires alignment with God. And that alignment comes from our topic today. That alignment with God comes from confession. Of course, confession is an English word. But that's the English word that we has, that's been used by translators. But the word in Greek is a compound word. And I don't speak Greek, I'm sorry to say, so I may not pronounce this right, but I could spell it for you. The Greek word is a compound word, homo logeo. It's made from two roots that you might recognize. Homo, which means same. That's very, very commonly used. And logos, which means word. Same word is the Greek that we translate into, well, first into Latin, and then later into the English word confess. So confession, in its most basic sense, is speaking the same word as God. When we confess, we match our language to God's language. And God always speaks the truth. Always. So in confession, we speak the truth as well. Now, how do we do that? Well, you know, this is what you're studying, that, that confession is a spiritual discipline. And you'll remember that a spiritual discipline is something that you do now, something that you can do right now, so that later you will be able to do something that you cannot now do by your own power. Spiritual disciplines are the means to change. And the change we are after, as your beautiful Lenten illustration shows, we're after the change of being crafted into Christ-likeness. That crafting is done by God. Spiritual disciplines, if you'll use the, the old metaphor of um, planting, sowing and reaping. Spiritual disciplines are God's way of getting us into the ground so that what we can later reap is Christ-likeness. That's God's work, but we've got to be gotten into the ground, and that's why we use the spiritual disciplines. Now, some of the disciplines, many of them are things that we do by ourselves. Last week, you talked about prayer. Very often, prayer is a solo activity. Meditation is often a solo activity. Solitude is always a solo activity. But there are other disciplines that are called corporate disciplines. Now, that's from the Latin word corpus. You didn't know you were going to get so much Latin coming to church today, did you? The Latin word corpus means body. And a corporate discipline is something that we do with one another. And confession is one of those. You don't confess by yourself. You cannot confess all by yourself. It's an impossible task. You might say something by yourself, but if you're confessing to God, you are with God. And as a spiritual discipline, confession is something that we do with each other. Now remember, spiritual disciplines are things we do with our bodies. This is what we've got to work with, right? And think about it. In using language for a discipline, we use our mouths 
when we speak words of confession. We use our ears when we hear words of confession. We can see another person as he or she makes his confession, whether we are speaking aloud or reading lips or using sign language. Confession is something that can be seen, the very act. We are embodying, and this is how the disciplines work. We use our body to fuel our actions, and this puts us in the, into a place and into a state of mind so that God can change our hearts. So, confession. First of all, the very first kind of confession you know about, I imagine you might do this sometimes here. Do you ever say a statement of faith? Do you ever recite a creed, perhaps? That is a confession of faith. We're saying the truth. We're saying what we know to be true about God. When I was baptized, I made a confession of faith. It was a simple one. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I was speaking the truth, same word, agreeing with God about what is true. So a confession of faith is an important thing we do for and with one another. The second is confession of sin. And this is an important one. God knows the truth about every one of us. Some of you can probably recite Romans 3.23. Who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All. We've all sinned. In fact, our passage this morning says, if we claim to have no sin, the truth is not in us. So this is an important way we align ourselves with the truth that God knows it's very comforting to me, actually, that um, when I confess my sin, that I am confessing something that God does already know. How many of you have ever clung to the knowledge of a sin, wishing you could hide it from God and from your neighbor? This is, how, this is what sin does to our hearts. It makes us want to hide. It is the most anti-community thing there could be. Sin draws us into ourselves. But confession, confession is the antidote. Now, because I have been mentored by Richard Foster, I have to mention some old writers. <laughs> So if you know Richard, you know he has such a love for the saints through the ages. And there's one saint, um, Italian man, Alfonso Liguori, um, 18th century Italian bishop, who said that for a good confession, three things were necessary. And I think he's right. The first is an examination of conscience. Second, sorrow for sin. And third, a determination to avoid sin. Bishop Liguori said that in order for a confession to be worthwhile and effective, there needs to be a real examination of your conscience. 
You need to have sorrow for the sin and be determining to avoid the sin. You don't confess just to make a clean breast of things, but you're wanting to avoid sin. Now, interestingly, before he was a bishop, Alfonso Sligori had worked for years as um, an attorney. (laughs) I think that's very interesting that confession would be what he would write about. But confession is more than just making a clean breast of things. Remember, confession is same word. We are agreeing with God. We're coming into alignment with him about the state of our hearts. We say what is true, even when that thing is painful, even when we know we have hurt someone or hurt ourselves or offended God. Look, again in Romans, Paul says the wages of sin is death. And we know that's true, don't we? We feel it. When we sin against God, we, we, we know. We know that it doesn't line up. But, as 1 John says, if we confess our sins, well, he, he's faithful. Faithful and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in speaking the truth, again, aligning our language with God's language, we are set free. We're once again aligned with the truth. And we are rescued from the isolation that the enemy of our souls wants to foist upon us. Listen to these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But the life we were created for by a God who is community is a life of connection, not isolation. The power of sin is the work of the enemy of our souls. Our enemy rejoices when we avoid connection with God and with one another. But that power is broken when we are honest with ourselves, with God, and with one another. And so we admit what we have done wrong, and we do it to one another. Now, you don't, it's not something we do willy-nilly. And in dealing with some of our deepest, most anguishing sins, we find someone whom we trust and who can handle the fact of our own sinfulness. Perhaps that's Chris. Perhaps that's Rachel. Perhaps that's a member of your leadership team. Perhaps that is someone from your small group who prays for you. But we don't burden another person with our sin. We admit it. And we let our brother or sister take us to the cross. 
and we leave it there. Because fixation on our sins is not what we are after. And often when considering confession, people get confused here and think that the point is to wallow in our sin and to stay there fixated on the fact of our sinfulness. That, I think, is again a tool of the enemy. What Jesus has made possible for us is not that we are required to be fixated on our sins, but that we can be set free. I'd like to find some advice here from um, an old friend, Julian of Norwich. How many of you know the story, Julian's story? Are you familiar with her? One of the reasons I love Julian is because she is the first woman to have written in, in English at a time when she could have gotten in a lot of trouble for writing. Julian lived in 14th century Norwich, England, a port city. And if you think you're afraid of coronavirus, during Julian's lifetime, there were six episodes of the Black Plague in Norwich. It was a port city, and what they didn't realize was that the plague was being brought right into town, compliments of the fleas on the rats in the ships. Six episodes of the Black Plague. Julian, who lived through these episodes, at one point, she had asked God, she so loved the Lord that she had asked him to be united with him. And at one point, she was very close to death, comatose. The priest had been called to, to do last rites. But Julian had an experience with the Lord in which she was present to the Lord for 10 hours. It was just her and Jesus. And she had these remarkable, oh, what shall we call them? Showings. That's the word that's usually used. These things that Jesus showed her. And she wrote them down. And then later, she uh, served as an anchoress for her church. She lived in a little cell adjacent to the church. And after 20 years of going back and reflecting on what Jesus showed her, she wrote, wrote them out and, and sort of gave us an annotated version. It's usually called Revelations of Divine Love. But here's what I want you to know about Julian. Julian was pretty much obsessed with sin. Sin so grieved her that she just couldn't imagine why God let it go on. And in these conversations with Jesus, when he was showing her more and more and more of his love, she kept saying, yeah, but what about sin? And he said, well, it's like this. And she would go back and say, no, what about sin? But Jesus, what about sin? And finally, Jesus said to her, look, Julian, Jesus said, sin is inevitable. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. You might have heard that quote, but you probably didn't hear the first part. Jesus was saying, sin 
doesn't win. Hear these words from Julian. She said, the cause why we are so troubled with these sins is because of our ignorance of love. To this knowledge, we are most blind. For some of us believe that God is all power and able to do all, or that he is all wisdom and knows how to do all, but that he is all love and will do all, there we stop. This ignorance is that which hinders most God's lovers. There persists a fear that hinders us because of paying attention to ourselves and the sins we have done in the past. And Julian goes on to say, God does not will that we busy ourselves greatly about accusing ourselves, nor does he will that we be full of misery about ourselves. For he wills that we quickly attend to him. For he stands all alone and waits for us constantly. Sorrowing and mourning until we come and he hastens to take us to himself. For we are his joy and his delight. And he is our cure and our life. Wise woman. So we have confession of faith and confession of sin. But to really align our language with God's language, we must deal not just with our sinfulness. The fact that we are sinful is indeed the truth, but it's just part of the truth. It's not all of the truth. So in practicing the discipline of confession, we agree with God about the fact that he dearly loves us. We use our words. We speak and we hear words that are in agreement with the truth of our belovedness. Now, when we confess our sins to a confessor, the confessor then speaks words back to us Words of absolution, we usually call them. Words that tell us that we are, in fact, forgiven. So when we speak words affirming our belovedness, that demands a response as well. That demands a response of affirmation. You see how this is a corporate discipline? This is something we do together because we desperately need to say and hear the truth from one another. Now, how can you state your belovedness? Well, the Psalms can be really helpful for this. Some of you may know uh, Psalm 139. It declares that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you may have trouble believing that about your own self. I know I did. For many, many years, I would think, okay, fine, David, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, but surely I am not. 
But to say those words aloud, to hear those words, it's not a meaningless exercise. Another confession, maybe, the well-known dictum of Henry Nouwen's, I'm not what I have, I'm not what I do, I'm not what others think of me. I am the beloved child of a loving creator. That is God's truth. And in confession, we use our words to align with God's. Listen, I am the beloved child of a loving creator. Say it with me. I am the beloved child of a loving creator. Do you believe it's true? It's what God says. Perhaps you want to use the words, the very words of 1 John 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Say it with me. That is what I am. I can't hear you. That is is what I am. You may easily be able to admit that you are a sinful creature, but you are so much more than that. You are the beloved child of a loving creator. Here's another one, one of my favorite confessions. These words were written by my friend Jim Smith. This is simple. I I urge you to memorize it. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. Did you hear that? Say it with me. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I suggest you practice that during Lent. And during the week of the passion, as you're considering what Jesus did for you on that particular occasion, it was not because of your sinfulness that Jesus came to earth. It was because of his love. Did sin need to be taken care of? Indeed, it did. It needed defeating. And Jesus' work included that. But love is what brought Jesus to earth, is what founded his ministry, is what pervaded his teaching what took him to the cross, and what rose, brought him back from the dead and prompted his ascent to stand and sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. That was love. So if you're going to align your language with God's, 
You must know you are more than sin. You are beloved. By practicing confession, we are enabled to stop being fixated on our sins and to luxuriate in God's love for us. And because we speak these words to one another, I can also luxuriate in God's love for you and you and you for me. We align our language with God's language. And that is the language of community. Confession gets things straight for us so that we are made more and more safe for one another. Able to live joyful lives in the love of Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, blessed Holy Spirit present with us now. You are so good, God. And we praise you for lifting us into your community of love and for transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We praise your name. We thank you for all you've done. And we ask for courage to live ever more fully in the truth of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.